0: Brought to you by LifeTree at Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com. I decided to proclaim it this episode. Did that sound proclaimy? I, I think so. Well, my name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus Centered Life and the very just released book, Spiritual Grit. The end of a two-year climb up and down Everest several times is what it felt like. But the new book, Spiritual Grit, is just released. It's in its first couple of weeks, and many of you who listen to this podcast have already picked up a copy of that book and uh, written a review about it on Amazon or are in midstream reading the book right now, so it feels so great to have this uh, cloud of kindred spirits all sort of uh, reading the same thing at the same time and, and having something similar go on in their life. Um, it's funny because i I wrote the book, but the books that I write I usually what happens is after I'm done writing them, I set them aside for a little bit, and then I read them like a reader <laughs> to see how I'm impacted by it. That sounds funny if you're not an author uh, that that's gonna sound really weird. How could an author read their own book and and grow as a result of reading it? <laughs> but it happens and and so I'm actually reading. The book right now as well um, for those of you who've picked up a copy of it, and because I want to grow right along with you. So anyway, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about spiritual grit and how you can uh, get a copy of it and and how you can let others know about it. So right now we're in the middle of a four episode taste test of some of the themes that are in spiritual grit. Last week, uh, Steph Hilbury was on the episode, and we, we talked about risk. And uh, by the way, I do the same thing with our podcasts, that after I've recorded them, every week I listen to them on my way up to group, and it's really a, a highlight of my week. It sounds funny, but I love listening to the podcast. not because I love to hear myself talk, although some might accuse me of that, but because I actually learn and grow from listening to like, for instance, last week, from listening to my conversation with Steph, I, I learned and grew from that. So anyway, if you haven't checked out last week's episode on the necessity of risk, uh, I thought it was a, a, a highlight for me. I thought it was really good. So please go back and listen to that one. So today we're going to focus on another one of the central ways that we grow in our core strength as followers of Jesus. And before I tell you what that's going to be, by the way, none of these pathways that we're going to be exploring over the next uh, you know, few weeks that are embedded in spiritual grit, none of these pathways that we're going to explore really come to us apart from our intimate, growing relationship with Jesus. I mean, we're not just working up our grit and strength and perseverance in our life, we're really leaning more deeply into Jesus. And gaining the strength that he has that's the point of the book spiritual grit is that the strength we need is the strength that he has so he very much wants jesus very much wants us to grow in our core strength and we know this is true because every single person he interacted with he did something sometimes something shocking to promote their core strength to promote their growth even people who came to him as needy people he, he introduced a little edge of hardship into whatever it was he was doing to set them free. So it, Jesus had this penchant for wanting people to grow. He was determined that they would enter into greater and greater life, and away from, from the spiral of death that uh, happens to us. It's called entropy, where all things that are set in motion Like, uh, many people believe that the universe, once it was set in motion, has been devolving toward entropy ever since, and entropy is the slow slow movement toward stop (laughs) in the end. Entropy leads to death in the end, and Jesus was so committed to bringing life and abundant life to us that he upsets our apple cart, and that's part of what he does. So all of these things we're going to be uh, focusing on really are embedded in our intimate attachment to Jesus, who is wanting to build strength in us from the inside out. So today we're going to focus on a chapter in the book that's titled, Changing Our Language, Changing Our Behavior. But really underneath that, the focus is on dragging our interior narrative into the light and then challenging it and then inviting Jesus to redeem it and change it. Now by interior narrative, I mean kind of the conversation that you have going on inside the stuff that you say to yourself in sort of your private conversation. It's actually not just little one-off statements. These are things that make up a running narrative inside of us, and this running narrative that we all have inside of us is either leading us to freedom or leading us into captivity— this interior narrative helps to define our identity, and it also gives evidence of what we believe about our identity. So the stuff you say inside to yourself, the stuff that, you know, if we could listen in to the the dark, silent space inside of you, that, that stuff actually comes spurting out sideways into our everyday life, into our everyday conversations. These things actually comes spilling over that this interior conversation becomes a public conversation because you can hear little evidences and fruits and 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 spurts of what's happening inside people when they spurt them out into their into their everyday life. So all of this is crucial because as I I go into this more in depth in the book but our words have tremendous power to form our reality. Because we are created in the image of God, um, who formed all reality by his words, our words have huge impact, a huge shaping impact on our life and on the lives of others. I thought I'd just read this little, little uh, section from the very beginning of this chapter called uh, Changing Our Language, Changing Our Behavior. Let me just read you this little portion that really elevates the power of words in our life so here's what it is the gospel of John begins with this truth the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone that's in John 1:4. so John here is referencing the beginning of all things when God spoke creation into being through his word who is Jesus when God speaks what comes out of his mouth is Jesus Likewise, the Genesis account of creation is driven by the power of the tongue. Quote, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be space between the waters, and that's what happened. And God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place, and that's what happened. And God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, and that's what happened. Look, again and again, God's words fashion reality, and because we are created in his image— our words also have creative power. they're the vanguard of our beliefs and our beliefs form and shape our reality. So that's a little portion from the the start of this chapter on changing our language, changing our behavior and i'm I'm emphasizing this because we we uh, treat our words uh casually we all know that sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me and but that's actually not true. We all understand the fallacy of that, that words have tremendous power to hurt and to build up, but we treat our interior narrative rather casually. We treat our own words to ourselves as not something to be focused on or outed or dragged from the darkness into the light, typically, but it's super important to acknowledge what our interior narrative is what the themes in our interior narrative are, and to drag them out and to set them before the mirror of Jesus so that they can be challenged and redeemed. So one way to kind of think about this is maybe you've met someone who seems sort of locked into a certain narrative in their life. I mean, uh, people, uh, you know, like somebody who has had the same hard thing happen to them over and over again, seemingly randomly, but wow, you... You almost get this sense that you know that the next time you hear from this person you're going to hear a similar story again. Uh, it seems random, but the same narrative seems to be playing out over and over again. Well, most likely that person's interior narrative is the culprit. So what comes out of your mouth helps you understand the dark interior of their narrative. So when you, if you listen closely to the things that come spurting out sideways from those people, you start to get a clue as to what's going on in their interior narrative. So negativity outward is often an indicator of negativity in our interior narrative. So this is true for all of us. It's not just some people that have to wrestle with this. The only people who say they don't wrestle with something difficult in their interior narrative are people who are dishonest, (laughs) people that don't want to uh, be vulnerable enough to admit that. So... I told Adam that I, I wanted to uh, have him break in on our episode today. Adam, if you don't know, uh, if you're not a longtime listener, Adam runs the show here. He runs all the technical stuff behind this, and that's just his—that's uh, like the tiniest rabbit trail of his life. Adam's in charge uh, of a lot of the stuff that we market as resources here. He's involved, and in, he has his fingers in lots of things here, but this is one of the things that he he does just because— he has the heart of a servant, and he he runs the show. He runs the technical show. This is the the reason why we're able to post podcasts and record them is because of Adam. And so Adam has to sit there and listen to every single podcast. He's, he's the most avid podcast listener there is for paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. So I said I wanted to uh, just have him break in here. And Adam, I, I'm wondering, if you think back over this last week, um, what... What wrestling matches, or what's a wrestling match that you've had in your interior narrative over the last week?
1: Well, one of the nice things about editing the show is I can edit out every nice thing you said about me so it doesn't post. (laughs) It's not going
0: to happen. Oh, we'll see about
1: that. (laughs) I'm actually playing drums on our worship team at my church this week, and uh, I've been playing for a couple months now, and it's really difficult for me to do it because internally I... I think I'm a big failure every time I play drums, and mm. I'll miss a beat, and I'll find myself going up and apologizing and saying, I'm so sorry I messed up that song, when no one notices, and, and everything comes off okay, but uh, and I internalize it as, you're going to fail, you're going to mess this up, you're going to ruin everything, and, and people are trying to worship, and they're going to hear uh, that, that slight beat you missed. And, and so uh, this week, particularly, we have a, a challenging worship set coming up that I'm I'm not as familiar with the song, so I've been practicing and learning, and I'm, I'm terrified internally that I'm just going to mess up, and, mm. and everyone's going to see me as this guy trying to be a drummer who's not really that good, and I just have this fear uh, internally, and and it it impacts the way I talk about it, that, that people are going to see me as this, this sham trying to do something that he's not that great
0: at. Yeah, what's interesting as you're saying that, is I have two teenage daughters, and One aspect that is abundantly clear with teenagers—it's just a developmental reality for teenagers—is they believe that the whole world is watching them. And that's a developmental phase that uh, people grow out of, but we never really leave it behind fully. There's always this place inside where, uh, if we're self-aware, we are paying ridiculous attention to our own little flaws, and failures, and goof-ups, and how we don't meet the standards that we hope for, and we're uh, acutely aware of these little nuances. And we, we have this fundamental belief that those things are as big as an elephant in the room, and, but then we recognize people outside of us don't recognize them at all. To them, it's a little cockroach that they've never noticed before, but to us it's an elephant. And so we can't get our sight around it because there's this elephant standing there right in front of us. So we treat it like that. And I've had this experience many times. You probably have had this experience, Adam, even in, as you may have voiced this. People are like, what are you talking about? I didn't notice anything. Or this, this happens with—maybe uh, <laughs> this is too stereotypical, but because I live in a house full of girls, they'll come out in the kitchen, they'll say, my hair looks terrible today. And I'll look at their hair and I'll go, I don't get it. Your hair looks great. It looks as great as it did yesterday. And they look at me with disbelief, like, how can you say that? It's terrible. Don't you see this over here? And I stare at it. I'm like, I don't get it. Well, it's because we're so conscious of our own flaws and our interior narrative reinforces those flaws and uses them as evidence for a bigger story in our life that we say kind of, uh, you know, when we when we screw up or we have a little flaw or we don't say something quite the right way or we miss a beat when we're playing drums, that it's not just a one-off uh, little mistake, it's further evidence of this larger narrative in our life, let's see, there it is, there it is again, uh, that proves it that I'm blank, fill in the blank. So that's a great example, Adam, and I, I'm thinking about people, for instance, that may always uh, have have their interior narrative telling themselves that they're sort of awkward socially. And so when you're in social situations, you're always gathering evidence, like a, a prosecutor would, for to support the premise or the crime of being socially awkward. So as soon as you've done something that you think, ah, oh, I didn't say that quite right, or that person kind of looked at me a little funny, or... Those people over there seem to be having a really great conversation, but when I walked up, they kind of got quiet all of a sudden. I know why that is, because I'm socially awkward. So this interior narrative is always looking for evidence, like a prosecutor trying to convict someone of a crime. And these things, that these evidences undermine our ability— to persevere in the things that really matter most to us. We want more than anything to make close relational connections, but our interior narrative is destroying the grit and perseverance we need to build those relationships, because it's constantly telling us that our identity will never allow us to enjoy that. So we want to make closer connections relationally, but our interior narrative is fighting against that or maybe you have an interior narrative that's marked by what I call in the in the book in spiritual grit I call this catastrophic thinking. So it's actually based in uh, some research by social science researchers who have uh, probed into the the impact that catastrophic thinking has in people's lives and what they've discovered is that it undermines grit and perseverance like termites. Catastrophic thinking is the stuff we say to ourselves that is sort of magnified to the extreme. So it's things like, oh, I'll never be able to blank, or this is the worst blank ever, or that's the end of that blank. It's this kind of magnified, extreme kind of uh, thinking that translates into a narrative inside of us that just eats away at our the foundation of our identity. So I was thinking about the fact that I have just released Spiritual Grit, and I've written about three dozen books, written or edited three dozen books over the course of my life. Some of them are little books, some of them are Bible studies and curriculums, but some of them are books like Spiritual Grit, kind of a significant book that takes a long time to write, and I've written many of those. And every time I have the same sort of wrestling match with my own interior narrative—I remember— probably six or seven years ago, after I first released the book called Sifted. It was really my first book for a wider uh, Christian audience, not just for a ministry audience, but for anybody. And so there was a lot of excitement and risk and anxiety all wrapped up in the releasing of this first book that I just poured myself into for a couple of years, and I really loved that book. And so it's, it's almost like sending out your beloved child to their first day of school, you know, and you don't know what's going to happen. So uh, several months after that book was released, it was apparent that that book, for whatever reason, was not going to get any traction. Uh, It got a lot of people reviewing it um, on Amazon and elsewhere who loved it, but it just never translated into a book that, that sold very well, that very many people went to go get. And so this was such an excruciating experience for me. I was having. I went for a walk one day alone, and I was having it out with God. I, I just. I was like a little toddler. I was kind of throwing up my hands, saying, "Well, if this is how this is going to go, you know, where I, I pour myself into something and people seem to like it, but it doesn't really sell, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. It's too painful." Um, so I, I was in mid tantrum like that on on this walk, and. At one point, I was kind of finished ranting, and I paused, and I recognized that everything I just said to God was true about my interior narrative, and just the fact that I went and took a walk and got all of that out instead of kept it inside was a huge difference maker for me, because no longer could I kind of hide the fact that this is what I was really thinking. I got it all out there. It's kind of like any psalm you read. (laughs) David is essentially... Dragging his interior narrative out into the public light, he's getting it out in the open with God, and that is really the first step we have to take with our interior narrative: is to drag it out into the light. So that's what I did that day, and I remember this this kind of long silent pause, and it was one of those moments where I I just felt very close to Jesus in that moment, uh, uh, kind of ironically because I was ranting at him, but I just felt very close to him, and I felt like I could hear his quote-unquote still small voice, and the first thing I experienced—this is going to sound funny—but the first thing I experienced him with with him was just a smile. I felt like he was just smiling at me, like a secure, mature parent would smile if a toddler was having a tantrum. Instead of reacting to the toddler, he just smiled at me. And, and And then he said, essentially, Rick, if I want you to write books, then I'm going to make it possible for you to write books, no matter what the outward sign might be i'll make it possible so you trust me to do it it's in my hands not yours so if i want you to do this and i've called you to do this i'll make it possible and i and i i think the first thing i said back to him was well not with not if this happens again because nobody's going to publish a book from me again well i've published 6 books since then <laughs> and it's crazy sometimes i think that's a crazy miracle that's actually what it is. Jesus spoke into my narrative and changed the game. He basically said, I need you to trust me with this, and uh, otherwise this this isn't going to work. And I I made a deal with him that day. I said, I am going to trust you. That's up to you now, Jesus. If you want me to keep doing this, it's totally up to you. I will do my darndest, the rest is up to you. So he radically changed my interior narrative that day, but the first step was getting it out in the open. So One thing about these interior narratives in our life, they're always what I might call plausible, meaning that in the same way Adams struggles over missing a beat or wondering if he's going to be able to hang with a difficult song that he's about to play, there's evidence that that could happen. It seems plausible that these things are actually true, but plausibility does not mean that it's true. Just because we've gathered evidence that supports our case doesn't mean the case that we're presenting is true. And that's really where we want to dive into a, uh, an encounter Jesus has with someone, you know, with a paralyzed man in Matthew 9. So I'm going to go ahead and read this, this story. This, this is uh, in, in every chapter in Spiritual Grit, when we're talking about ways that Jesus interacted with people in a way to help them grow their core strength, each one of this, these chapters is a different way he interacted with people to grow their strength, and each one starts with an encounter Jesus had with someone that kind of highlights that particular approach. In in uh, this chapter, Changing Our Language, Changing Our Behavior, it begins with this story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man, and it's in Matthew 9. So if you're not driving a car and you want to turn over to Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8 and follow along, you can, but here's this little snippet of a story. So Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Now, some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, hey, be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, oh, that's, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Well, Jesus knew what they were thinking, And by the way, just a little aside here, when we see that Jesus knew what they were thinking, we often think, oh, Jesus had magical powers. He could see what they were thinking. I think the truth is, he's fully God and fully man, that he was super smart and savvy in the way that he studied people. And so it's not hard to understand what they were thinking in that context if you were studying them and understood the context. So it says Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. Well, fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen, and they praised God for giving humans such authority. So the the people's response was, wow, This guy's a human being, but God gave him a lot of power. Uh, They still don't quite know who he is, and that's kind of consistent with whenever Jesus is in his hometown, the people had a really hard time believing that Jesus was who he said he was. In fact, he was very much limited in his impact in his own hometown, because most people didn't believe in him. And here's another example of them seeing something extraordinary and just ascribing this to hey, this is just a regular guy that God has given a lot of power to. But the interesting thing here is that this man in this story has obvious physical needs. That's why his friends are bringing him to Jesus. But instead of addressing this sort of surface captivity in this man's life, Jesus first addresses his interior captivity. So this guy is dead inside because sin kills inside. So Jesus decides to give life to his dead soul first by telling him he's forgiven, and now he has a new identity, and that identity is forgiven by God. Well, this the fact that he does this just infuriates and offends the teachers of the religious law, and they're, they, they're doing what, you know, you would expect people like that to do in this situation. They're like, who does this guy think he is? I mean, is he nuts? we saw him grow up, he's the carpenter's son. Who does he think he is? And Jesus, because he's studying how they're responding, labels their attitude as evil. (laughs) That's a pretty strong word. But evil basically means it's fundamentally contrary to the kingdom of God. So then he asks them, what's easier, to free people from captivity in the physical or free people from their captivity in their soul?" which one is easier to do? Because I can do both. And he basically decompartmentalizes the two and says, you know what? Uh, I, I did what I thought was most important first. Now, everybody there would have said, this guy's physical incapacity is the most important thing to heal first. Jesus upends all that because he sees them as the, as the same thing, and he decides to heal his inner captivity first. So he decides to change the man's interior narrative first, and then he changes the man's exterior narrative. The two kind of go together, but Jesus thought it was more important to address the inner reality of his unforgiveness first. So that's what I, I love so much about this little story. We can easily overlook the upending thing that Jesus does here, that he doesn't really respond to the man's physical need first, which would have been the obvious thing to do. So this man, as a, uh, a person who's lived his life unforgiven and has been saddled with a body that doesn't work because he's paralyzed, think of the interior narrative this guy has. Think of the destructive patterns of thought this guy has, and Jesus first targets that interior narrative to try to upend it and to drag it out into the light, and then even before the man is healed of his paralysis, Jesus is like celebrating the fact that his sins are forgiven. There's exclamation points here when he says, "Be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven." He's saying, "Woohoo! <laughs> your 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 sins are now forgiven, even though his body is still paralyzed." So Jesus is again elevating. How important it is that our interior narrative is adre- is addressed somewhere along the way. I wanted to um, point out a couple of other things here that are important relative to Jesus' teaching about the power of words. So the first one's in Matthew chapter 15 eleven I'll just read that right out of the Jesus centered Bible. So it starts in actually in verse verse 10. And, he, and it goes, goes like this, Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. So what he's saying here is, he's saying this to people who have been well-coached to treat anything that goes into their mouth As super important to pay attention to relative to their holiness, their purity, their cleanness. They're not supposed to eat certain things. They're not supposed to put certain things into their mouth because they would be unclean. And Jesus is trying to upend that default setting and say, you know what, you guys, you got it backwards. It's not really the stuff that you're putting into your mouth that makes you unclean or defiles you. The things that really defile you are the things that come out of your mouth, the words that come out of your mouth. He's trying to say that your words have power, as we've mentioned before, they have a forming power, and the words that come out of your mouth can really destroy you, that they can slime you, they can undermine your foundation, and they certainly will undermine your grit. So one other quick thing, in Luke chapter 6, I thought we'd mention, so Jesus... This is a really important deal to Jesus. He, he mentions it off and on all throughout his teaching. So let's go to another place. Luke 6, 45 is where we're going. This little section in the Jesus-centered Bible is, is labeled the tree and its fruit, and it actually starts in verse 43, so let's back up to there. And here's what Jesus says. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So I'm going to back back up to verse 44 there, where Jesus says, a tree is identified by its fruit. So what he's really saying is, the the things that come out of us— do identify us. They're, they're little markers to show to show others and show ourselves what we are really thinking about our identity. Uh, these things that we speak out in, in an interior way and then speak out uh, in a public way really do identify us, and that's why he's so concerned about uh, the focus on those things. So it's so important to pay attention to that interior narrative. So there's a little context for how Jesus is engaging uh, people about this. Now I want to move into some pragmatic aspects of how to live this out in our everyday life. This is sort of just a menu of thought and opportunity and experience and experiment. Um, These are just things to think about and to maybe try um, as an experiment in your life. So one way to think about this interior narrative that we have is that, uh, that treat it as if it's your garden, So if you leave that interior narrative to simply grow on its own, it's like ignoring the weeds in your garden. So you just say, well, I'm going to plant a garden, and then I'm not going to pay attention to anything else that's growing in it. I'm just going to hope that good stuff grows up in my garden and that the weeds don't choke it out. So if we don't pay attention to our interior narrative, that's what we're doing. We're saying, I don't really pay attention to whether weeds are growing up in the garden. So if our narrative is like a garden— then it needs tending. We can't just leave it alone. We have to pay attention to it. Um, if we don't challenge the conversation we're having inside, it's like leaving the weeds to grow up in, in our garden. So we have to pay attention to it. So, uh, what does that mean? Well, we're mindful of our thoughts, we're aware of our interior narrative, we're, we, we drag it from the kind of the recesses of our mind into the forefront where we acknowledge what it is that's going on in our interior narrative. So I asked Adam to share something that happened in the last week in his interior narrative, and when he said it, I believe something powerful happened, because he said it out loud. He got it out into the light, and that's the first step toward exposing the weeds so that they can be pulled up. And we are not—by the way, Jesus told a little parable, a fascinating little parable about a thief— Who goes into a field at night and and sows weeds all over the all over the field and then the next day the farmer sees that weeds have grown up amongst his crop and he doesn't know what to do and the first reaction is to go out and pull all the weeds and in the parable the master says no 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 don't don't pull up the weeds let me pull up the weeds because if you pull up the weeds you're going to pull up some of the good crop as well so let me do it so the first step in our interior narrative jesus is trying to teach us is to first get it out in the light, say, look, there's some weeds there. And it's interesting that those weeds are often planted by the thief. So it's a good thing to recognize who's doing the planting in your, in your garden. If you have weeds growing there, it's certainly the thief who's planting those weeds in your interior narrative. So it's a good thing to say, hey, look, there's weeds growing. That's the first step. But then our our mission is not simply to go pluck them, but like everything else in the Jesus-centered life, it's first to look to Jesus, to pluck them for us. Once we've outed them—so this is like my my little tantrum uh, on my walk with God, where I got all this stuff out in the open, and then I stopped. And then he did something. He entered into my narrative and started plucking weeds for me. It's a dependent way of living instead of just muscling through stuff. The first step is just to simply be mindful of our own interior narrative and to be vigilant about where those thoughts are aligning. So what are the themes of your interior narrative? What are the recurring touch points in your interior narrative? What are the accusations that you're very familiar with in your interior narrative? One of the things I say in Spiritual Grit about catastrophic thinking and— one way to counteract the this catastrophic thinking that we have inside of us is we come up to brick walls and we often and that's what often leads to our catastrophic thinking oh well that's the end of that then or oh you know how how can i possibly get over this brick wall oh there's the brick wall again but in the book i say uh, the brick wall has two ends on it and gritty people people who have accessed the strength of Jesus, learn how to walk around the ends of that brick wall. They come to a brick wall, and they don't say, well, that's it then. They start looking for the way around the end of the brick wall. That's a way to to neutralize the catastrophic thinking that we have inside. The idea here is to familiarize yourself with where you are. For example, um, I was talking with Steph Hilberry the other day, and she gave this example I thought was really good. If you want to get a better handle on your finances— Well, you start keeping a spending log to kind of figure out, where am I spending my money already? It's the same thing with our interior narrative. You first have to become aware of what that narrative is. So um, she and I were brainstorming uh, a few ways that we can do that or that we have done in our life. So one way is to simply journal your interior conversation. This is something my wife does a lot of. The way she gets her interior narrative out is she just writes in her journal What's going on in her interior narrative? She gets it out on the page where it can be dealt with. Or, you know, if you don't, if you're not a journaling kind of person, you could simply record it on your phone, take 60 seconds and say, here's what's going on in my head right now. Or a way that I do all the time. I mean, I, I can't remember a time where I met with a good friend where I didn't drag into the light something that was in my interior narrative. So I very purposefully, when I meet with friends, talk about what's going on inside my interior narrative at that time in my life. So that's another way to get it out in the light, is to tell a friend. The idea is to expose it to the light so that you can understand what it is, and when you vocalize it, when you get it out there, the light helps you to see it. And then then there's the opportunity for Jesus to start plucking weeds. Here's one way that you could live this out. Spend the next two days, the next 48 hours, simply paying better attention to your interior narrative. Pay better attention to it. When when something's going on inside, stop and try to acknowledge outwardly what it is that's happening there. So you can verbalize your fears or your complaints or your praises, even, or your beliefs. Get them out in the open, and get your narrative from something that's uh, you know, an undercurrent to something that's right out there. And then simply invite the Spirit of Jesus to recalibrate you. Ask him to tell you who you really are. Ask him to be your mirror. Ask him what his nickname is for you. This is, I mean, these are things that I do, believe it or not. Rather often, when I'm aware of my interior narrative and how destructive it is, you can feel it. The narrative is driving you toward a certain destructive outcome. You can sense that if I keep thinking this way or telling myself something like this, here's what's going to happen— you can kind of get a sense of it. So when i when i become aware that this is the place that i'm in, i i try to stop and ask him to be my mirror. Sometimes i'll literally say, "Jesus, what's your nickname for me today?" What what do you call me today? And i wait to hear back what he says. Or i'll ask, well, "What words would you use to describe me today, Jesus?" Now these things when when i stop and ask Jesus these questions, One thing you know for sure is because he's a good father, a good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep. He is not going to use condemning language with you. If you ask him a question like that, he's not going to destroy you with his words. He's going to speak truth into your life, and that truth is going to inflate you, not deflate you. It doesn't mean that he's Pollyanna and just says only positive things. He's going to say true things to you, that will uh, inflate you rather than deflate you. So ask him to show you a better mirror of yourself in Scripture. Ask him to take you somewhere in Scripture that can serve as a mirror for who you really are, that can serve as something you can chew on to help reclaim the truth about who you are. I have a friend of mine, by the way, who moved to a new city um, less than a year ago, and she left behind a really great friend group. but when she moved to the new city, she slowly began to to develop a new group of friends that she really, really loves. But she just told me the other night that even though things have gone really well and she's built all these new relationships, she's missing a certain kind of friend that she used to have. And that certain kind of friend is someone who will pay attention to her, to what you might call her essence, and then speak it out. Meaning someone who will reflect back the truth about who she really is, her new friends are funny, they're enjoyable, they're, they're witty, they're, they're, they're satirical, they're really fun to be around, but they rarely reflect back the deeper truths about who my friend really is, and, and she's really missing that in her life, and I, I resonate with that. We all need people around us who, have, who will slow down and pay attention to us and reflect back to us who we really are. And here's one last little thing here. What about all of the killing and stealing and destroying influence of the enemy of God in our narrative? I said he's the thief who plants those weed narratives in our life. So what do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that we don't always feel in control of our interior narrative? Sometimes we feel like there's stuff planted there, or there's uh, ideas or thoughts that pop into our head that are tantalizing for us to hold on to. Well, I'm just gonna tell you kind of bluntly what I do when these things happen, and I probably do something like this every day. So when I become aware of one of those weeds that's just been planted in my narrative, or a plausible lie that's there, or an insidious accusation, or some kind of subtle leverage that's that's happening inside, um, Here's exactly what I do. I just say either out loud or under my breath, "Go to hell, Satan." I literally say, "Go to hell," um, and if I say it twice or three times, if I need to, or alternately, I say, "Go where Jesus tells you to go," because Jesus has ultimate authority over the enemy. There's nothing, nothing the enemy can do if Jesus tells him to. So I just say, "Go, go to see Jesus and go where He tells you to go," but I interact. I, I take authority back. I don't just accept or let sit any of these plausible lies that are being planted. I fight back. And my most often way of fighting back is I simply, bluntly say, go to hell. Uh, I tell him to go back to where he came from, and I don't want to hear any more of that. And I have to say, it usually shuts it right down. <laughs> I'm not thinking about whatever that is that, that I was thinking about before. So that leads to this last thing. What do we do with the the narratives that surround us in others? What if you have in your life people who have destructive interior narratives happening all the time, and you know it because you hear them, it spurting out sideways all the time, you know that there's destructive narratives in the people around you. What do you do about that? Well, of course, our our mission in life is to acknowledge the real feelings that other people have— Uh, feelings aren't right or wrong. We've been told that our whole life, that if you have a feeling about something, that's your feeling. Yes, but um, our mission is also to help set captives free, to help captives find freedom. And there's no greater captivity than the captivity to a destructive interior narrative. So when it comes to destructive narratives, what do we do when we hear it in other people? So here's a few things to think about. When I think about what I do, and by the way, this kind of way of living takes courage, that's why grit must fuel it. Um, We need the strength that Jesus has to live this way, so it takes grit to do this, but one thing I do is I hold up a mirror to those destructive narratives that I hear, and I compare them to the kingdom of God. So Jesus did this all the time with both his friends and his enemies. He would say, you know, you've heard it said, this— But I say—and what he was doing, he was contrasting the way people typically think to the the way that it's done in the kingdom of God, the truth about the kingdom of God that is different than the truth that we sort of default to. And so Jesus will say, you've heard it said this, but I say this. He'll say, it's this, it's not that. And he'll challenge people, both friends and enemies, with, well, how can you hold on to that? Or how can you believe that? Like, uh, one quick example of that is when he encountered Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, he, he told Nicodemus, you know, hey, you know, you're going to have to be born over again. And Nicodemus is like, what? What are you talking about? You mean go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says to him, wow, you're a, you're a, a learned man who's been studying this his whole life, and you don't understand this basic truth? So what Jesus is doing is confronting Uh, Nicodemus's interior narrative there, he's confronting it. And so we are often not nearly as blunt as Jesus is in these kinds of confrontations, but the idea is that because we are his body living in the world, we're his extension in the lives of others, that we would habitually hold up a mirror to the destructive narratives we hear in others, not for the purpose of negating what they feel, but to hold up a mirror that says, here's what I hear— and here's how it contrasts, here's how it seems to contrast with the truth. So to do this with most people, you would need a kind of a shared pivot point or point of reference with them. So if you're going to compare their destructive interior narrative to the kingdom of God, you're assuming that they value the kingdom of God and hold it dear. But there are many people who don't, and in that case, we can still hold up a mirror of reality to them. It's just we, we don't end up referencing the kingdom of God in that mirror. We can still mirror back what we just heard and the consequences of that destructive narrative that we've just heard, the likely consequences of it, and an alternate path forward instead of it. So uh, another way that I think is um, an everyday way that we can deal with the uh, destructive interior narratives of others is, is to not so much attack the weeds that we're hearing, But instead, when we think about mirroring, we're trying to mirror back the beauty that we see in the other. The way I say this to myself is, if I see it, I say it. Meaning, relative to paying better attention to other people and remembering that my words have great power to form reality, that if I see beauty in others, I say it. I'm looking for it, I'm paying attention to it, and when I see it, I say it. I get it from the, outside, from the inside to the outside so that my words can have the power to form. So here's an experiment that you could try. Choose one important person in your life, and for just one week, concentrate on paying attention to the subtle beauty or gifting or strength that you see in that person. Pay ridiculous attention to that person, not for the purpose of pulling their weeds, for the purpose of appreciating the subtle, nuanced beauty, gifting strength that that person has. And every time you see something, say something. It's going to feel a little bit awkward maybe at first, but you'll quickly get used to how to naturally throw out what you see with that person. And then if you do this for a week— See what happens with that person over the course of the week. So let me just give you a quick example of this. The reason I'm going to give you this example is I'm not saying that everything has to be quote-unquote spiritual that you do with this. So my wife would not call herself an artist, and I think that's a destructive narrative that she has in her life. She actually is an artist, and one way I know that is she is the best cook. She's an amazing cook. She is very creative in what she does, and it's always healthy, well thought out, and all of the little details are paid attention to. So one thing that I do is I am over the top with what she cooks for dinner, when she cooks. I tell her exactly what I think about it. And of course, because every, all of us understand this, we, we struggle with our interior narratives, her first reaction is to diminish it, to deflect it, to say it's not really true— But I persist. I say, you're not hearing me. Wow, this is incredibly good, and here's why. And I really appreciate how creative you were with this. So one of my missions with my wife is to undergird the truth that she's an artist at heart. And the one way I do that is when I see her operating as an artist, I say it, and I point it out to her. I do it over and over again. So if she was sitting here right now, she'd be nodding her head. She'd also be saying, no, I'm not an artist, (laughs) because these weeds that grow up in our garden are kind of hard to pull, especially if you've been nurturing them since you were a kid. That's why we need people around us to reflect back the true beauty of us. All right, there you go. There's a few things to think about and to try this next week. Remember, if you would uh, like to check out Spiritual Grit, uh, where all you know, you can go into greater depth with everything we've just talked about here in Spiritual Grit, just go to Amazon, especially during the first 30 days of its launch. Amazon's the place to go because the more people that buy from Amazon and then maybe post a review there on Amazon, uh, Amazon sits up like a puppy and starts wagging its tail and pointing to that book. And, and that's really the point here is to get a, a wider number of people. Who are all chewing on these things and and going through this kind of growth season together? So, so head on over to Amazon, check out Spiritual Grit. Once you've read it, please, if you would, post a review there. It'll it'll be a super super help for this effort. And by the way, um, if you go to our uh, our podcast page, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus dot com. Um, you can find our podcast section there. This is, by the way, Season 3, Episode 18 again. If you go there, you'll find some links to the the memes and videos and other things that we've provided people who want to share the news about Spiritual Grit the, on their social media platforms. So you can go and find them there if you want, and share those with your friends to, to uh, introduce them to this so that uh, we're all on the journey together. So again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Life Tree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. And next week, we have a special surprise guest that I can't wait to join me. I'm not going to tell you it is now. I'll just introduce her next week when she's on. So we'll see you again next week.